Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. This episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird, Inc. CMS's Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS, is super complex. And if clinicians ignore the program or perform poorly in it, it can result in a hit to their revenue and reputation. Chirpy Bird is proud to say that more than 95% of its clients are exceptional performers in MIPS, meaning they've maximized the score that directly translates into their Medicare reimbursement rate. Chirpy Bird offers their audit-proof services to practices of all sizes through an affordable monthly subscription that includes unlimited access to a regulatory expert who guides them in knowing what data to track, how to create workflows that make capturing that data easier, and ensures that they submit it all to CMS on time and performing at its best. Contact Chirpy Bird today or learn more at chirpybirdinc.com. That's chirpybirdinc.com. Hey there, and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. I'm Joy Rios, and today I'm talking with Natasha Shebani, who's the senior scientist with the Focused Ultrasound Foundation and assistant professor of biomedical engineering at the University of Virginia, and an honoree of the prestigious Forbes 30 Under 30 list. She's developing therapies to treat cancer using ultrasound. And Natasha shares her passion and curiosity that she's had from a young age with our listeners. I got to admit, I was super impressed by all of her accomplishments as a young woman just starting her career. And I think you will be too. Take a listen. Natasha, thank you for joining me today. I'm really looking forward for this opportunity to get to know you better and your place in the healthcare ecosystem. As I've said earlier, like we kind of liken healthcare as a 10,000 piece puzzle. We all hold a piece of it. Would you mind taking a moment to introduce yourself and talking about your area of expertise? Absolutely. So I am an assistant professor of biomedical engineering at the University of Virginia. Newly minted, in fact, I just started my position about a couple months ago after a postdoc at Stanford University. So I went to Stanford to do sort of this hybrid postdoc appointment in oncology, radiology, and biomedical data science, where my focus was largely on 
cancer research, but specifically the applications of imaging informatics to cancer research. And then prior to that, I was actually at UVA doing my PhD in biomedical engineering. So it's really exciting to have basically come full circle to return to my alma mater as a faculty member. And now what I get to spend most days thinking about, it's really two things. One is how we can use sound waves to stimulate the immune and also how we can use advanced imaging techniques to monitor and sort of optimize that process. So in essence, my lab works on therapeutic ultrasound and quantitative imaging applications to advance precision immuno-oncology, the more complex way of phrasing it. Wow. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> First of all, congratulations on your new role. That's Thank exciting. You. <laughs> and second of all, the where you spend your time, like just thinking about making an impact is just kind of mind-blowing. It sounds like a lot of fun. I'm sure. <laughs> but so can you share what is different about, say, like a typical scan versus what you're doing now? Yeah, you mean like a like an imaging scan? Yeah, so there's a lot in that. I mean, you know, a typical imaging scan, something like an MRI or an ultrasound or a CT scan or a PET scan. I think these are the things we think about, right, when we think about a standard imaging scan. So my goal is to take that standard of care imaging and make it work for us better in a couple of different ways. So one of the ways that we leverage imaging in my lab is to basically target tumors with therapeutic ultrasound. So we use some of these techniques to perform image guidance, image guided drug delivery, I should say, perform image guided uh, therapeutic ultrasound regimes, meaning that we can basically use the imaging to precisely locate the target that we're trying to hit with our sound waves. Another way that we can use this imaging is actually to perform surveillance after the application of therapy. So whether the question is about, is the tumor responding to therapy, or whether the question is about how is the immune system reacting to the application of our therapy, we have all kinds of different cool tools we can use to actually arrive at answers to those questions using these, what we would think of as standard imaging techniques. But we tend to think of those techniques most typically through the lens of diagnosis of disease, for instance, diagnosis of cancer. And the reality is that they have a lot more applications that stretch well beyond that. Can you talk about some of the interesting tools that you get to work with that others might not be familiar with? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the most fundamental tool I could talk about here is the platform technology that my lab and several others really around the world work with, which is focused ultrasound. And so I'm curious, had you heard of focused ultrasound before our conversation? No, and and what it makes me think of is like, you're talking about cancer research, but I'm thinking about babies. And so how how much overlap is there? Yeah, so so in a sense, there's, there's quite a bit of overlap in that fundamentally... Both diagnostic ultrasound and therapeutic ultrasound are leveraging similar, I would say, like they leverage the same basic principles of, you know, how we apply sound waves to the body. But in one case, we're transmitting those sound waves in order to generate an image. And in another case, we're transmitting those sound waves in order to actually achieve a biological effect within the tissue. Okay. 
So with therapeutic ultrasound or what I'm calling focused ultrasound specifically, what we're doing essentially is curving the aperture of that transducer from which the sound waves are emitted. And when all of those sound waves are emitted from that curved aperture in a manner where they can be focused into a single ellipsoid volume, the energy density within that volume suddenly renders a variety of different bioeffects in the tissue. But before I get into what those bioeffects are, I just want to mention the really cool thing about this is that we can transmit those sound waves in a way that while we achieve effects within that single ellipsoid volume. You can imagine this is a volume somewhere on the order of like a grain of rice. Okay. So the bioeffects that we can achieve within that single ellipsoid volume are non-invasively achieved first and foremost, because typically that transducer is positioned outside of the body. Mm -hmm. Second of all, they're achieved without any ionization. So focused ultrasound is a non-ionizing technology, which distinguishes it from other therapies like radiotherapy, for instance. So the idea is that we're exerting these bioeffects in the tissue without any effect to the intervening tissue in that space between this focus and the transducer. But the bioeffects that we can achieve actually range quite widely in the sense that they can be anywhere from thermal to mechanical in nature. So depending on the exact amplitude of those sound waves and the time scale over which we apply them, and whether we apply them, for instance, in a pulsed or continuous manner, we can achieve anything from like thermal ablation of the tissue to mechanical fractionation of the tissue to even more low intensity regimens that are really not meant to be destructive, but rather meant to perturb the tissue in such a way that we can achieve better drug and gene delivery. Can I ask a really layman's question? In my head, I'm like, okay, we're inside of the body and there's a tumor. And based on this sound wave, we're going to either break it up, heat it up, or something else that you said. Yeah, oh, yeah. Then, that's exactly right. Then what, <laughs> fact, that was a much more eloquent way of putting it. Than <laughs> but then what happens after you like break it? Okay, the sound waves like punctures it and breaks it up or heats it up. But then what happens? Like it still needs to be removed from the body, doesn't it? So it depends. It kind of depends on the goal. Like, you know, that tissue in a sense can be cleared out by the body's endogenous mechanisms, depending on what you've done to it. For instance, if you've thermally ablated and liquefied that tissue, there may not necessarily be a need to then go in and like resect what's there. But again, that really depends on the extent to which you've achieved that in the tumor tissue. Now, the other thing, the thing that I'm really more fascinated by and you ask like what happens next, that's really like where my job comes in. So the idea is like we've done something to this tissue now, but the question of what happens next, I actually view through the lens of the immune system. So a lot of my questions are rooted in really like what happens to that tumor tissue? How does the immune system react to what we've done to that tumor tissue with these sound waves, right? And the idea is that if we generate the right cues for the immune system by virtue of what we've done with those sound waves, then we might actually be able to make those tumors more responsive to really amazing therapies like immunotherapy, for instance, which we know to be a remarkable category of cancer therapy, but unfortunately it only works in about 15 to 40 
percent of patients with solid tumors. So that's really the promise of of what we're hoping to achieve. Okay, also layman's terms. So assuming that like, okay, somebody has a cancer and their their tumors are really big, you blast them up. And then now because they're smaller, they might be more receptive to a different type of therapy that they otherwise would not have been. Yes? Exactly. Exactly. Again, they could be smaller because like you said, we blasted them with these sound waves. But in a sense, also we can, you know, to kind of keep it in layman's terms, we can do other things. Like for instance, you could envision we're like poking holes in the tumor, for instance. We're poking holes in the vasculature that sometimes serves as a barrier to the penetrance of drugs into those tumors. That makes sense. Uh, We can do that kind of thing. Or we can activate agents locally that would otherwise have potential toxicity systemically within the body, but we can sort of activate to have those cell killing effects specifically in the region that we target with ultrasound. That's another example of something we can do. And again, the whole paradigm around how immunotherapies work is really rooted in this idea that patients that have what we call inflamed tumors or hot tumors is kind of the layman's term, right? So the idea that, you know, a tumor can be highly infiltrated with immune cells or in contrast, immunologically ignorant or poorly inflamed or what we call cold. So the hot versus cold paradigm is really what drives, at least we think, this notion of how tumors uh, will respond to immunotherapy. And the idea is that hot tumors tend to respond more favorably than cold tumors. So for a lot of patients, this notion of how inflamed their tumor is can be a prognostic indicator for response. And so we have a lot of growing evidence for the idea that we can shift cold tumors to hot ones by applying these focused ultrasound regimens. Very cool. Okay. So now does it matter which type of cancer it is? So different types of cancers certainly respond differently. And that's because cancer, as much as we refer to it as a disease, it's really like many different diseases, right? So we do know that we have generated, I think, a wealth of evidence for different types of cancers in the context of focused ultrasound and immuno-oncology. This includes both cancers of the periphery, like breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, melanoma, but also cancers in the brain as well, whether it's metastasis of a primary tumor to the brain, or for instance, primary brain tumors like glioblastoma. There's really growing evidence for those cancers and many more as being immunologically responsive to focused ultrasound. And this is really good news for anybody who, well, you're not going to have to get cut open to deal with that tumor. Uh So if you have like a brain tumor and you can get this targeted ultrasound, like it's a lot better news, right? You're just like, oh, that's actually something that's maybe not, well, not nearly as scary as somebody trying to do, get inside your skull. Yeah. Yeah. So lately, the way that I open my talks is a little more provocative, I think, than you would expect a scientist to (laughs) open up talks. But I've been very lucky, I think, to have been given a few platforms lately where I've gotten to be a little more futuristic in the way I present this idea. So I'll present it to you as well. Like imagine a world where you could, I mean, not to say, I mean, not you specifically, I should say imagine a world where, you know, someone who is undergoing cancer 
treatment and cancer management could undergo the entirety of their cancer care from prognostication to treatment to monitoring and surveillance without ever having to interface with a scalpel or a catheter or having to suffer from those debilitating off-target side effects that we hear about as owing to whether it's chemotherapies, radiotherapy, or otherwise. I think that the era that we're potentially able to usher in here with focused ultrasound and our advanced imaging methods are going to be truly enabling for making that kind of future a reality. And the reason is, again, because we're talking about being non-invasive Mm-hmm. from start to finish of that cancer management paradigm. I so, mean, you know. thinking about the recovery time or like downtime okay. for people, like all of that, it sounds a lot a lot less scary that if you if you get a diagnosis of whatever type of cancer, that it might be more manageable. Absolutely. And, and that's very true. And I think that that's something that from just a, from the standpoint of being a translational researcher that I have found very gratifying about getting to witness the treatment of patients with this particular modality. I bet. I mean, okay, so I'm super impressed. And I, <laughs> I, I have to say, like, in a lot of these conversations that I get to have, they're like calming fears that I didn't even know I had around like aging and, and just yeah. health in general. I'm like, okay, all right, technology and our, our medical advancements are pretty significant that like as a patient, that is, you know, something to look forward to. At least it's like not as, I don't know, scary. Absolutely. Ultimately. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, as a cancer researcher, I think I've, I've sort of presented all of this from the standpoint of my biases, you know, but the reality is that even just focused ultrasound as a technology is highly versatile in terms of the indications that are now available. Like there are over a hundred clinical indications for focused ultrasound today. And these range anywhere from sort of the conceptual stage to the stage of being fully FDA approved and US reimbursed, meaning that whether it's, you know, neurodegenerative disease or cancer or cardiac disease or pediatric disease. I mean, I could go on and on with the list because really there are just that many indications that exist for the technology. So we covered very specific aspects of the cancer applications and immuno-oncology. But I think to your point, like it is really exciting to hear from the perspective of how many possibilities exist. And is it the kind of thing that everybody would have access to, like covered by, you know, any like uh, particular CPT codes or through our like fee-for-service model? Is it something that maybe patients should be aware of that if they have a diagnosis that they should be questioning their doctor whether or not, you know, focused ultrasounds are available as an option for, for treatment? Yeah, I think absolutely for some indications that the technology has reached that point. And I think you spoke to something so important, which is just awareness. The more people know about the technology, the more they are able to. And in that goes not only for patients, but also for clinicians as well to, you know, I think that there's a huge ongoing effort within the field to heighten that awareness and to promote the adoption of the technology. And I've had the good fortune of really since the time I was a grad student, 
and interfacing with a foundation, a, a nonprofit organization that is really spearheading that effort. And that's the Focused Ultrasound Foundation. So um, actually during my postdoc, I was able to work part-time with the foundation and served as senior scientist where I really got to understand these things at a, at a much closer level. So the reality is that the foundation is spearheading a lot of those efforts on the awareness and adoption front. And the technology has come a very long way by virtue of those efforts. But for the many indications I mentioned, you know, we still, of course, have a long way to go as well. So how can I ask about you? Like, how did you decide on this as your career path? Like, is this something that you knew about <laughs> when you were a kid? Like, I want to work on, you know, on cancer treatment or, you know, what has your professional journey been like? Yeah. So, you know, I think that my journey in science, the more I reflect, the more I come, have come to appreciate that it started pretty young. I think I caught the bug when I was pretty young and that was just, just you know, through like volunteering at my local science museum and the children's museum and going to like the math and science center over weekends. And of course I was very fortunate to have parents who like supported these things. But, you know, from there, I think that in tandem with those efforts, I was also really interested in research, but it was before a time when I had appreciated that laboratory research is an option. And it's an option, in fact, for students who are much younger than you'd think. I've seen students as young as middle school come into wow. you know, research labs at universities and, and do science. And in fact, I've mentored students at that level. So my reason for saying that is my foray into science sort of started in my parents' garage, you know, like cooking up experiments. And then at some point, you know, I upgraded to going to our science classroom after school, actually. I had two seventh grade teachers who today are very important to me because I think they really played a formative role in helping me really advance my love of science. They would open up the doors of their classroom to me after school. And I did a science project under their direction that actually ended up winning a prize at a science fair, my first science fair. And then that's really when I got into the science fair game and wanted to up my game. And suddenly by the age of 14, I found myself making phone calls to labs at a local university, Virginia Commonwealth University, in the Department of Anatomy and Neurobiology, I made phone calls until someone picked up the phone. And I was like, you know, can I please join your lab? And the person who picked up that phone ended up being my grad student mentor for like the next two, three years. Wow. And then from there, really, it became, again, just a constant dynamic shift in interests to where I ended up after the neurobiology lab in a biomedical engineering lab at VCU. And that actually ended up really setting the path for me to explore the possibilities in biomedical engineering, which now that I look back has really not ended to this day because now I'm back in a biomedical engineering department as a researcher. So my journey in drug delivery started pretty early at VCU. And then that evolved into an interest in image-guided drug delivery, which brought me into the field of focused ultrasound a little serendipitously, I'll be honest. And then, you know, the the idea of working with focused ultrasound and, and I think like the enthusiasm I was met with in the field and how much I really started to believe in, in the power of the technology and, and the transformative role it could play for patients was certainly what kept me here. And I think a really validating part of that was 
by the end of my PhD, the preclinical work that I ended up doing in breast cancer actually translated into a clinical trial that's now ongoing here at the University of Virginia, where we're treating breast cancer patients with a combination of focused ultrasound and a chemotherapy that we first explored in the lab. So it's really cool to see that paradigm come full circle. You know, there's, there's been a thing that's crossed my field of, you know, whatever, just like all of the things that you've come across, but it stuck with me. And the way that you're speaking, it's it's this, it's very simple. It's just like, how do you measure your success? There's only two people in your life that you really need to make proud. And it's your eight-year-old self and your 80-year-old self. I love that. And I'm just like listening to your accomplishments and thinking of like a 14-year-old you knocking on the doors <laughs> or like, you know, calling a bunch of labs with that level of, you know, confidence <laughs> and like, like self-assurance of like, hey, I want to be involved in this. Like that's, I don't know. I mean, looking back, that's got to feel pretty good. It's amazing. I mean, I look back with so much gratitude and I think I owe so much to the people who have really fostered my interests and mentored me along the way. But I have to say, if you had told my eight-year-old self that I was going to be like a an assistant professor at 25, I would have been like, <laughs> I probably wouldn't have even known what that meant at the time. But you know, what it has meant to me is that I get to really not only keep doing cool science, but I think I, I really feel like now I have this platform, which I've had for some time, but now it's grown in a way that I really feel as though I can start to pay all of that mentorship and kindness forward in a very meaningful way. And I think that the mentorship and the teaching aspects that also come with an academic career, I deeply value. And so I'm equally excited for those parts of the job in addition to the, the research. Sure. Well, so what is some of the advice that you give, you know, for folks entering their career? And I mean, you're just barely entering your career too, but like <laughs> you've accomplished quite a bit. So I'm like, I typically, Dr. Shabani, I normally will ask people who are, you know, a couple of decades older than you, like, what would you tell your 23-year-old self, but your 23-year-old <laughs> self was only, was only two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I, I mean, I think it's, um, it's a wonderful question and it's something that we should all ask ourselves at any stage, you know, like you're just your past self. So just to make sure I got the question, it was like, what would you tell? Basically, what advice would you have for somebody just entering their career and think of your own self as you were entering your career? Like if, you know, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give them? I think, you know, when you're entering your career and especially if you happen to be at my stage where you're young and it's, you know, an early launch and it's a little atypical, the one thing I can say is, you've got to be fearless, you know, like go into it without fear, stay true to, you know, the path that you've envisioned for yourself. In fact, something I love that I read somewhere was be uncompromising in your vision, but flexible in your path. So I spoke to the be uncompromising in your vision part. I think that you know, when you launch your career, you typically enter it with really big dreams, right? And you want to really be able to hold on to those. And I'm in this place right now where those big dreams finally feel like they're ahead of me, but they're within reach, right? So the idea is just to keep 
pushing forward. And that takes a lot of courage, I think, especially when you're a young person. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of courage. And so the other thing I would say, at least to my past self, is in the midst of doing all these things, you can't always plan out life. So I think it's really great to plan, but that concept of being flexible in your path is just oh so important in a lot of ways. And I know that my younger self had it all laid out for this current version of myself, but in a very different way, right? And so I look back on things now and I'm so grateful for the way that my journey unfolded, but I would have never been able to predict that things would have worked out the way they did. So I think that ability to to, you know, have a vision, but stay flexible on how you're going to get there is something that I've definitely learned throughout this process and plan to carry forward with me. Yeah, I think that's a good, that's a good way of thinking about it. Most everyone I talk to has not had a linear path. You know, life throws you curveballs and you've got to pivot or figure out like how you're going to manage it. And, you know, ultimately, like if you have a vision for what you're going for, just do the cha-cha. You know, exactly. Couldn't have said it better. Do the (laughs) cha-cha. Hopefully have fun along the way. So what do you see for your future? Like if you could guess, if you had a magic eight ball and could be like, all right, let's look into 10, 20 years from now, where do you see yourself? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think from sort of the, the standard ladder that you would climb in academia, I would certainly hope that I am moving towards the path really of advancing in my academic career path, meaning going through tenure and promotion and all of those things. But really what those things are meant to embody is that you are rising to a level of prominence in your field. And so I think within this next decade, what I really hope to do is just establish a strong footprint in this field that I'm already so passionate about and just keep growing to that point of being able to really call myself a leader and focused ultrasound immuno-oncology. And again, at that point, I hope that I have a strong track record of people who I've inspired to do the same thing through mentorship and teaching and otherwise. I love that. And I also think that what like the impact that you're going to have, like just your own personal impact, not just on you know, other people's careers, but actually in solving big problems. I mean, exactly. That's yeah. And the noble thing to say, right, as a cancer researcher is, you know, we all want to see the day when cancer is cured. So if I could have anything in this world, it would be to, you know, even if I played a very small part in it, it's to see that day when we eradicate cancer. But, you know, certainly within the scope of like, the efforts that are really like achievable and, and I know I can enable in my career, like really that paradigm of trying to make cancer care and manage management more precise and less invasive and less debilitating for patients. I think that unto itself is a really huge goal and one that I would love to keep working towards with, with, you know, the advanced imaging techniques that we're thinking about and the use of focused ultrasound. Very noble career. So if people want to, I mean, they're learning, you have a platform. If people want to connect with you on your platform, if they want to follow you or your journey, your career, your accomplishments, like where would you direct them to do so? You know, I, I've become more active on social media <laughs> over the last year or two. So uh, they can always follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is ndshabani. So my first and middle initial and my last name. And I'm on LinkedIn as well. 
And I also, on the UVA uh, Biomedical Engineering website, they can find my faculty profile as well as my lab webpage. So my email is just my last name, Shabani at virginia.edu. And so they, anyone is more than welcome to reach out via any of those platforms. And I promise them that I am super responsive and, and excited to get in touch. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I have learned a lot and I'm feeling more hopeful for our future in knowing you. <laughs> thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And, and I so appreciate again, the opportunity to, to join you on this podcast. Thanks. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. Hit Like a Girl podcast is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. One thing I love about working with them is that they're mission-driven, which means that they're dedicated to featuring authoritative shows, hosts, and guests who take on the tough topics in healthcare with empathy, expertise, and a commitment to excellence. If you're looking for bingeable content related to the healthcare industry, they've got more than 8,000 episodes on demand waiting for you. From professional development, the patient voice, digital health, innovation and entrepreneurship, and of course, health IT, they've got you covered. So this is your official invitation to check them out at healthpodcastnetwork.com.